Tonight, Julian, episode 14. For those of you... I think it might be episode 13, Michael. No, for those of you who are listening, Julian, I said we weren't going to do episode 13 because that's an unlucky number. So for us, 14 is a lucky number. But archaeologists in the future, looking back on this podcast, you know, many thousands of years hence, are going to be a bit disturbed about what happened to episode 13. Ah, well, sometime in the future we can go back and record episode 13 and then it will be discovered as a long-lost episode 13 and very valuable to those who find it. So tonight, it's Boston, it's driving in the States and it's university education. Is that correct? That's right, yep. Shall we start with Boston? Michael, tell us what you like about Boston. It's got history. Is that it? This episode's going to be running short this week. Shall we start with, uh, as my favourite, check what Julian knows. Ready, Julian? Yeah, yeah. This is when you ask me a question which you prepared for, but I haven't. <laughs> That's the joy of this podcast, Julian. Do you remember in your dim and distant past, and it's a musical reference, and I know you like musical references, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Ah, yes, I do, yes. What do you know about Paul Revere and the Raiders? I do know a little bit about Paul Revere, who was a revolutionary figure uh, in the Revolutionary War, who famously stopped uh, for a pint of ale, I think it was, while taking a message to his revolutionary friends in New England at the time of the the revolution in the 18th century. Uh, But you're talking about the band, are you? Well, I was going to reference the band. The band were a popular combo, very much in the era of the Beatles. Uh, so we're talking yes. 67, 68. I, I actually can't recall their greatest hits. A bit late for me, but I mean, obviously in your teenage years. I can't remember many of the hits, but they did have an album called The Spirit of 67, which I thought at the first would be related to some great historical event. But I subsequently discovered, no, it wasn't. It was just related to 1967. And how did their songs go, Michael? Do you want to treat us to I knew you were going to say that, but no. Um, What, of course, was special about Paul Revere and the Raiders, they dressed in period costume. I mean, I do recall them from reading one of the very many books I've read on the Beatles. I'm aware of them, but I can't say that I would be able to name any of their songs, for example. No, neither could I. But why Paul Revere? Because as you correctly say, he has a special place in American revolutionary history. Indeed, he had the famous cry, did he not, the British are coming. One of the things I like about Boston is the history trail. You can walk around all the important parts, all the things you saw in the American uh, Revolution. Of course... I think it's called the Freedom Trail, isn't it? And it's actually a line, isn't it? It's a red yeah. line, yeah. which is painted onto, I don't know, must be a, like a couple of miles or, or or something. So you follow that line and then you will see all of the history in Boston. From the Common through to Bunker Hill, something like that. But, I mean, I'm not going to record the, the, um, the Freedom Trail because, of course, this is the American slant on the American Revolution that they got the freedom from the British, didn't they? Right, they did, yeah. The famous one is the famous Boston Tea Party. Do you want to say something about the Boston Tea Party? Well, I think it was the equivalent of 18 and a half million tea bags, or, or today's tea bags of tea, were thrown into the, into the water by 
some people who were protesting about the taxes that Britain were imposing on, uh, on, on the American colony. I believe, and in these politically correct times, this would not be allowed, but I believe that they were dressed as Native Americans, which would be regarded pretty much as cultural appropriation these days, and hence the New England Patriots, the American football team. I think is named after that uh, that endeavour. Uh, George Washington wasn't at all pleased with this stunt because he actually liked tea. Okay, and I was I was going to say you write in these BC times. In actual fact, they tried to blame the Indians, didn't they? They dressed up as Indians to say it wasn't the revolutionaries; it was all the Indians' fault. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Times change. Times change. So, Boston's got lots of history. Yeah, and you perhaps ought to explain to people what Boston Common is. Oh, it's, it's in the, a park in the centre of Boston. It's the oldest park in the US, I think. It could well be. And, and it's, fa- it's got the famous duck statues, hasn't it? Have I got that right? Tell me more. Um, no, I, I should have done the research. There's a yeah, you're too right. You should have done the research. Because I thought you would know about it. It's Julian. almost as if you didn't know you were going to come on a podcast. No, no, no I, I do, I've done lots of research, Julian, but I didn't. The, the author who wrote about the, the ducks in Boston Common, which I'm sure you know about. They do ice skating on uh, Boston Common, just as they do in Central Park in New York. As you say, doing the Freedom Trail, very touristy, but it's a very pleasant thing to do. Uh, but Boston, you know, is an old city. It's one of the first. Uh, cities in America, a former US capital. If you like history, there's lots of things to keep you occupied. Uh, so what else do you like in Boston? Mike? Before we go on, I'm going to quick check. These are the famous bronze ducks created by Nancy Schoen, S-C-H-O-N, called Mate Way for the Ducklings. And it's on, allegedly in one of Boston's top 10 attractions. I'm not so sure about that. Which other US city has ducks as part of its uh, attractions, Michael? Ooh, difficult question, that. And we're not talking about duck tours, because Boston does have a duck tour. No, we're not talking about duck tours. We're talking about ducks which make their way from a hotel rooftop. Yes, I remember seeing this, yes. Yeah, it's in uh, Memphis. Memphis, yes. the Peabody Hotel. Every day, these ducks make their way from their home on the rooftop of the Peabody Hotel. They take the elevator and they go down to the lobby and they make their way to a big fountain there. And it's a big uh, tourist attraction. And uh, although it may sound naff, actually, it is really quite fun. Okay. Well, of course, the ones in Boston are statues. They don't move. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So other things to go and see. You definitely have to go to Fenway Park, of course. Yeah, you do. As, as a historical and, and, and a nice tour around the ground. I've done that. I've not seen baseball there. Um, you need to go across the river to Harvard. Yes. Uh, and I'm also going to say to the MIT building, the building um, which I believe is called the Rea Maria Stata Center, designed by Frank Geary, which is really uh, something to be seen. Yeah, that's just down the road from Harvard. So uh, dealing with the second one first. So Harvard and, and MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, they're both based in Cambridge, uh, which is just across the river from Boston. It's a pretty old US university. I think it's 1636 it was formed at uh, Harvard. And that's a, it's a good experience. 
And then the first one, I haven't been to Fenway Park. It's definitely on my list of things to go to. Uh, it is the oldest major league ballpark. And it's famous for having really quite an odd shape. You, can you describe the shape to the listeners, Michael? Um, that's a good question. So it's like, it's like, it's almost hexagonal, isn't it? It's sort of, um, or shell shape, it's crescent at the back. Ballparks, typically, you know, most of them are fairly new. And they, uh, they, although they have slightly different dimensions, their dimensions aren't that different from each other. Whereas Fenway, it has a very short, well, what we would in, in cricket terms say is short boundary on the right-hand side, 310 feet from home plate. Uh, you've got one of the walls there where, you know, usually it's uh, a lot further away. And they have a 37-foot wall. That's called the Green Monster. And then there's another bit which is in centre field, which is shaped like a triangle. It's really very different from the other stadium. But I haven't been there, and I would uh, like to catch a game there. And it's also what I call very shallow in terms of the seating. It's not, not that tiered that well. And because it's a historic place, the actual seats themselves are, to say the least, somewhat aged. So I don't think right. you'd get a great view, actually, compared to the more modern stadiums. It's also quite small. I think it's one of the three smallest uh, baseball stadiums. You know, it's part of history, like Wrigley uh, Field in Chicago. Its oldness is quaint, and I think it makes it quite different from the other stadium. If you like baseball, or if you don't know much about baseball, go to Fenway Park. That would be an excellent thing to do in the summer. Uh, anything else you want to say about Boston, Michael? It's got a proper newspaper. It does. The Boston Globe. None of this sort of American Today sort of Mickey Mouse newspapers. It's got a proper newspaper. And what's the newspaper called, Michael? The Boston Globe. That's right, George, yeah. Always reminds me of like Superman, doesn't it? Sort of, didn't he right, wait yeah. for the Globe? Well, it was subject of uh, an Oscar-winning film a few years ago um, about the investigative uh, piece of journalism that uh, journalists on the on the Globe did on investigating the Roman Catholic Church and allegations of paedophilia against priests there. Terrific movie, uh, and as you say, it's a, it's a proper newspaper. Do you know why Boston is referred to as Beantown, Michael? Beantown? Um, no, I don't, Julian. Tell me why. So it's, it's known as Beantown because it was and is the home to baked beans in the United States. And indeed, Boston is the site of the world's worst molasses accident. Oh dear, tell me more. It was in, I can't remember, 1919, I think. This world's worst molasses accident killed 21 people, injuring another 100. Two million gallons of molasses escaped from the factory uh, and formed waves up to 15 feet high, travelling at 35 miles an hour. Gosh. Not sure escape's the right word, Julian. Surely leak from the uh, factory. But 35 miles an hour is pretty quick for molasses. Yeah, yeah. And given the nature of molasses, if you got stuck in it, you wouldn't be able to do too much, would you? I mean, if somebody said to me, you've got a race against some molasses, I, I would be feeling pretty confident that I can beat it, but I'm not sure I could run 35 miles an hour. Have you seen the John Hancock Tower, Michael? I have. Can you tell viewers what's important about the light at the top of the tower? Ooh, um, no, I can't. Go on, tell me what, what's important about the light at the top of the tower. It is a weather forecaster. <laughs> 
Okay. So the colour of the to- the lights on the top of the tower are the forecast for weather for the rest of the day. So if it is blue, then that means it's going to be a clear day. If it's flashing blue, means to say that it means that there's going to be cloud later. If it's red, that means that it's going to rain. And if it's flashing red, uh, it means it's going to snow. So I think a useful feature. And Yeah, and, and it's fair to say that Boston does have some extreme weather, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I mean, it has multiple days of snow and like, I don't know how many inches of snow it has. But I don't think it has quite the extreme weather that some other parts, you know, a few miles inland would have. I think there is something about the, the, the coast which restricts the amount of terrible weather it has. So, yes, anyway, this, this tower, which used to be called John Hancock Tower, I think it's now called 200 Clarendon or something mindless, that uh, has some lights which tell you what the weather is going to be, which I think is a, is a nice thing. I think that would be a good thing to do in London, actually. Also, it holds the record for catching grapes. Catching grapes. Yeah, so somebody would throw a grape off the top, which is 788 feet, uh, 240 metres, and then somebody at the bottom of the tower would catch that grape in their mouth. No. It's true. It's the world record for that. Is there video evidence that this took place, Julian? I haven't seen the video evidence. I was just relying on... Some website, I yeah, no, not Wikipedia. <laughs> well, I thought that again, was kind Julian. of interesting, and I, yeah. and I was thinking if you just got it slightly wrong and it hit you in your eye or something, oh, yeah. it might be a pretty nasty accident. But yeah. you know, it's a it's something to do on a Wednesday afternoon, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. What else about Boston do you want to inform our listeners? Given these staggering things that you were highlighting to me, molasses accident, grape catching, is there no end to what you can do in Boston? Happy hour. You can't do happy hour. You can't do For a place that allegedly hosted Cheers, there's no happy hour. That's right. 1984, they banned it uh, after a drunk driver killed a 20-year-old lady, Kathleen Barry, I think her name was. You're not allowed to do happy hour or call anything happy hour, even though it is the home of Cheers. Did you go to the Cheers bar? I saw it externally. I did not go. In fact, there's more than one, isn't there? There's, there's one in the Fanville Marketplace and there's one on the other side of the common. Yeah, so I, yeah, I did go into one of the Cheers bars. and you know, For the younger viewers, Cheers is a... If we, we have any younger viewers, um, Cheers is a 1990s, maybe even 1980s uh, popular sitcom. Yeah, and I'm pretty certain anyone who remembers Paul Revere and the Raiders will remember Cheers. Did you go to Salem to see the Salem Witch Trail Museum, Michael? I was going to say, now, there is also one advantage of going to Boston, other than being in Boston, it's very handy for going to see the remainder of New England, and in particular, in the fall, to go to Salem, Portland, and see the fantastic um, leaf coverage. So, yes, I did do Salem. Well, perhaps we'll do New England on another episode. Yeah. Um, did you go to the Salem Witch Trial Museum, Michael? I think we did. I think we did. I think we did. Yes. Yeah. Any memories of it? Not really. No. Uh, I remember Joe doing shopping in Salem and me standing behind a post box for about an hour and a half. But apart from that. 
Now, are you familiar with the Big Dig? The Big Dig? No, what's the Big Dig, Julian? They used to have an interstate road, uh, a highway, a motorway, which went right through the centre of Boston. And they decided that they were going to move it from going through the centre of Boston and have it going underneath Boston. And so they started this big programme, basically creation of a one and a half mile tunnel to take it under Boston rather than through Boston. And actually it coincided when I first went to Boston was when, uh, was when the big dig started. And when I last went to Boston, which was, you know, almost 15 years ago now, was when that big dig finished. It was three times over budgeted cost uh, and it was the most expensive highway in history. Gosh. Called the Big Dig. Okay. Well, what I can say on the two occasions I've been, and you say it's a walking town, it, it, it's, it is a quite easily away from traffic and it doesn't seem that busy uh, in, 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 in the city because you've got the parks, you've got the, the Freedom Trail where they're trying to encourage pedestrianisation. So it may have been quite successful in the sense that it, it, it's not like a lot of American cities. It doesn't appear to be overrun by cars. I think that's correct. And that's partly, I think, because of the big dig. Overall, what would you be rating it? Well, and more to the point, which rating system are you going to use this week? Well, we're week? going to use the, the, the new one we've advocated, which is the Premiership rating system. Is that a good system to use for our American listeners? I, I'm trying to educate them. So, so we could do an American football team rating system. So okay, if I said could to you, do. It, it's, like, it's a, a Green Bay Packers. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, that sounds... I think it is a a, um, a a Packers type of town, isn't it? Punches above its weight, doesn't it? Used to be really the best. Yeah. And nowadays, sort of, you know, they're going to do pretty well most seasons. They're going to make the playoffs. And they've got a history to it. Got a history to it. It's a, in, in our five-point rating system, it's a it's a four out of five, isn't it? It's, oh, yeah, it's a similar absolutely. to a Philadelphia. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a good town to go to... Uh, but go in the summer, I think, will be my advice. And, and, and I repeat, it's a good stop-off. So on one of my journeys there, and we can't have a podcast without me mentioning the trains. What was the train station like? I forgot to ask. Oh, the train station was nice, but not, you know, overly impressive. But, you know, not, not, not in my top three. Okay. And by the way, for those of you who listened to um, episode 12, and Julian was very derogatory about Nashville and the lack of trains... I can correct him. There were trains running through Nashville. Unfortunately, didn't stop at the station anymore. But there were trains. Oh. Okay. So. You could catch a train, but you'd have to throw yourself off the train <laughs> midway as it was hurtling through the countryside. You Is couldn't that what get you're off. You couldn't get off. Yeah. I mean, it's basically free. But coming back to Boston, it's hand. You can go on a train to New York. You can go then to, to Washington. And I, I can't remember. It's only about four hours, would it, Julian, on the train from Boston to New I York? I haven't taken the train, but it it would be yeah, probably four hours. It's probably similar amount to drive. I would say I, it's, it's been a long time since I've done the drive. I know we're going to talk about driving, but if you were fearful of driving in the states, you know, and you wanted a two uh, two city holiday. New York and Boston would be would be good comparisons, wouldn't they? Oh yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah, it'd be good. And 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 actually, if you wanted three cities, Boston, New York, and Philadelphia would be a great vacation, I think. Yeah. Okay. So four out of five, the Green Bay Packers American football style. 
So, Michael, what is it that you like about driving in the US? Well, let me say in the first instance, I think in the UK, maybe in Europe, there is considerable apprehension about driving in the States. I I suspect that's a function of American movies, seeing the the highways full of cars. And um, actually, it's remarkably easy. So what do I like about it? First of all, automatic cars. We don't need to worry about that. It's relatively well signposted, and a lot of the highways aren't that busy. And certainly, if you're going to out-of-the-way places, you can drive for miles without seeing another car. It's relatively cheap, petrol-wise. It's not expensive. I like the ability to plan the holidays around your, your vehicles, how, how long you want to drive from A to B. We're going to go on a subject we've covered previously. The weakness, you do need to plan in terms of where you're going to eat. Because if you're travelling in the motorways, a lot of the eating venues are not that good. Yeah, I think you, in a previous episode, you talked about the fact that you didn't much like Cracker Barrel, which that is was the one. probably probably one of the better eateries around. Yeah, well, Wendy's, Donut Shop. We always look out for Starbucks, so you get coffee places. But actually, you do need to go off the, off the main road if you want a decent place to eat. That's what I like. It's easy. Um, oh, and, and normally even the pickup of the cars is, is really straightforward. The Americans have got the car hired down to a fine art. Whether it's a midsize or, a, or an SUV, you can go into that row and choose any of the cars within that row. And they tend to be big cars. Yeah, so, so if you're on holiday with cases, spacious, quite nice. I, I like um, having soft tops. You can get yourself a Mustang. Yeah, so. One of the features about driving on a highway is that the way that they do the mile postings is very useful. So instead of having, you know, junction one, junction two, junction three, you know, that a British motorway would have, the junction number would be the number of miles as it is from the start of the road from that state. So if you're at junction 100 and the next junction is 113, you know you've got 13 miles to do till the next junction. Very logical way to describe junctions rather than all this sort of 1C, 1D business that the UK does. Things I don't like is, is the billboard advertising. It's all present. So, you, you know, and especially when you get towards a, a town, you, you're inundated with, you know, special offers, firework, local strippers. I mean, it's, it, it's full in your face. That's the first thing. Secondly, you've got to be careful about Do you speed. don't like local strippers then, Michael? Well, no, 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 no I'm, I'm just I'm illustrating a point. You've got to be careful of speed because they are very strict on speed, especially in urban areas. So you can get pulled over and have to pay a fine. I don't think in urban areas you should necessarily rely too much on your sat-nav because they may take you around areas that you shouldn't be in. So you do need to have a look at where you're going and get a sense as to where places are. And do you know why there are so many firework stores on American highways? Isn't it that certain states or certain counties you can't buy them? Is that something to do with the case? The rules on fireworks are determined by the state, not uh, the states, not the federal government. So... Some states have more relaxed rules, other states have less relaxed rules. So you can always tell what type of state you're moving into by whether the firework stores are on one side of the border or the other side of the border. Not having alcohol on display can be, a, can, can be an offence. Uh, it is an offence in most states, I think. If you've got any alcohol, you need to put it in the trunk of your car. Yeah. Any other specific rules you should advise our British visitors of? 
Well, let's just go back to why there are different rules. So uh, as I think I've mentioned many times before in this podcast, there is a big difference between state and federal responsibilities. When the Constitution was written, obviously we didn't have cars. And so therefore, by default, driving rules are a state responsibility rather than a federal responsibility. So the driving laws in each state are necessarily different. For example, helmets on people riding mopeds or motorcycles. In some states, about half the states, you need to wear a helmet. In other states, you don't need to wear a helmet. So those type of rules will change in each state. And then there are lots of detailed rules on many other things. And if I give you one example, and that's what to do if you hit a deer. Have you, uh, have you come across a deer when driving in, in uh, the US, Michael? No, I haven't, thankfully. But I did read the section in your book, which you can now trail what to do when you hit a deer. What's the book called, Michael? Oh, could it be something to do with an American journey? Well, it's High, Wide and Handsome, An American Journey. Excellent book. No doubt when you've been driving, you will have seen deer carcasses by the side of the road. Is that, is that right? You've seen that on regular well, occasions? Well, roadkill is, and certainly in the, in the wide open areas, you're right, roadkill is not uncommon, is it? 1.4 million deer every year are killed on the roads uh, with an average $4,000 insurance claim per deer hit. There are very distinct rules on what you do if you kill a deer, they will depend by state. So in some states, you have to report the deer kill to the local police. In others, you don't. If you want to keep the meat of the deer that you've killed, that will vary as to by which state you're in. In some states, you can keep it. In others, you've got to have a permit. So you'd have to go and ask a policeman for a permit to take that deer meat. And in some states, you can't keep the deer meat if you yourself have hit the deer but if you're in the car following, then you can take that deer carcass. But you would have to consult the individual state's rules as to what to do in the event of, uh, of hitting a deer. And uh, what would you do if a deer wasn't dead, Michael? Ooh, what I took from the book, Julian, was under no accounts hit a deer. Right. <laughs> it's it's yes. going to add complications to your holiday. Yes, yeah, so, well, like that, the, actually, the, the serious advice, which I, we don't really like to do on this, on this podcast, is that you should never swerve to avoid a deer. Just put your foot on the brake and do your best. You're more likely to cause yourself an injury by swerving than you are if you uh, just keep going, albeit, you know, try and put your foot on the brake. But if, if you hit a deer, and, and 1.4 million people do every year, then what you should do, and it's still squirming around, is you should get your gun from your gun rack of your truck and you should shoot the deer. Bear in mind that for your next vacation, Michael. Well, I need to point out, with its um, Avis or you know, uh, Alamo, guns don't come as standard. In, 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 uh, so you may have to you know, pre-order your gun in the event oh, of... like your GPS. You order your GPS, <laughs> yes. you order your child seat and you order your gun, yeah. yeah. Well, if you don't have a gun then uh, you can ask the policeman who's attending to put the animal out of its, uh, out of its misery. Uh, but they don't like to shoot the deer, the policeman, because there's a lot of paperwork they've got to complete. Okay. Those are the rules for deer. Obviously, they've got different rules for elk, caribou, and so forth. So you should consult your local driving rules when you're driving in each state to figure out what to do. 
I'm fearful here, Julian, because I was trying to make the case how easy it was for <laughs> a British visitor to drive in the States. And I think you are complicated. So let's talk a couple of something else that's strange. If you are looking for roundabouts in the States, they don't really have them, do they? Well, they are becoming slightly more popular. But you're, you're right in saying that they're not sort of standard. And the reason you know they're not standard is when they introduced a roundabout... They have to go and educate Americans on how to use them. Genuinely, there are newspaper articles, social media posts, which explain what you do when you, you come to a roundabout. They do have, as we, I think, trailed last week, Turn Right on Red, which is one of the great contributions to, to civilised society, I think. And why is that? Why do you think turning right? Given I'm in a culture where the one thing you never do is go through a red light. Left turning left, turning right, going straight on, you stop on red. Obviously, in America, they drive on the right-hand side of the road. And if you come to a red light and there are no cars going across the other way, then obviously it's safe for you to turn right. And you can do that and you can continue your journey and, and, and traffic uh, flows smoothly. It's a great solution. It's like being able to overtake on the inside on a, on a motorway. And just take me off something we should point out. The Americans often also have exit points on the wrong side of the motorway, don't they? Sometimes, yeah, they do. Yep. I mean, they're, they're not all on the right-hand side of the motorway, what would be the equivalent of the left-hand side. In, in Sometimes, particularly in cities, the exit point will be on the other side. And that can be a little bit tricky sometimes because these exits come thick and fast in cities uh, if you've suddenly got across three or four lanes of traffic to get into the right lane. In, into and the... certainly, if, I mean, you should always follow the instructions because they, they'll tell you which lane to be in. But if you're driving conservatively, as I do, Julian, and therefore I'm in the slowest or the next the slowest lane, suddenly you discover you've got to move three lanes to get off the motorway and you've got probably one intersection to do it, can be a little bit tricky. When I was teaching my children to drive, you said uh, three lanes. I mean, there are some of these motorways which have nine lanes. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, the more advanced things that I was teaching them was how you do cross nine lanes of traffic when you're driving in a car from, uh, from left to right or right to left. So what were the instructions you gave to how you cross a nine-lane highway going to the left? When well, just don't panic and, <laughs> and you know, remember that you've got to, got to look in your mirrors, you've got to look behind you as you change lane. You know, if, you can, if you've done that a few times, you'll be a little bit more confident about your driving. But in general, I completely agree with you. Driving in the US is a lot easier. The cars are big. The roads are big. They're automatic cars, so you don't have any issues with changing gear. It's a pretty easy country to drive in. And of course, there's one pleasure we haven't talked about, which comes when you drive in America. That is channel hopping on the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you can get everything from, you know, um, evangelical radio stations. Every place you go to will have an evangelical radio programme. Tammy yeah. Wynette and country music. You know, selection, is, and it's actually quite, you know, as you go through different states, just hopping between channels is definitely one of the pleasures of life because you'll, you'll hear and see quite a lot of things. When we were travelling there, experiencing the culture for the first time, it's a... It's a, it's a good way to learn about some of the corners of American culture. And, and I, I always have this little bet. I can guarantee if you go through enough channels, eventually you'll get to Bon Jovi living on a dream. Yeah, absolutely. You'll always get to Bon Jovi. 
Good. So you would recommend driving in the US to to all British tourists traveling to the US? Yes, as, as, a, as a fly drive holiday, I think it gives you lots of freedom. You know, as we've said before, if you travel huge distance by plane because you don't get a flavor of the country, even in small town in America, it's good to stop and see people and stay in local hotels. So absolutely, I would always recommend it. So, Julian, up next is our continuing theme on education. And I think today you're going to talk about the university system. Is that correct? As part of our ongoing series on US education, we're going to cover the university experience, or as they call it here, the college experience. In the previous episode, we talked about the differences between the US and UK college application processes. In this episode, we will talk about how and when students select what they study at university, the differences in what they learn at college, how US students typically work their way through college and university accommodation. As always, I will be helped by my two daughters who've been educated in both the UK and US systems. In high school, we had these years freshman, sophomore, junior and senior What's the system that we have for colleges? Yeah, so the system remains the same. You've still got that first year being referred to as freshman, second Mm. year sophomore, third year junior, fourth year senior. A lot of people go on and do a fifth year victory lap, is what they call it. And they call them super seniors. Um, And super seniors are generally people who haven't passed all their courses in the first four years, so I have to stay a little bit longer. Not necessarily. A lot of those people were indecisive about what they wanted to study. So they're not necessarily slack-offs. In fact, that's a big misconception that English people will have about taking a fifth year. They're not slacking off. They maybe just went down the wrong pathway at the very beginning. I asked daughter number one, what are the principal differences between how one selects what one studies at a UK university from how one selects a major at a US university? For our American listeners in the UK you apply to a course at a university. So you apply with your major and you get accepted just to that major. That means that changing that is very, very difficult and you'll have to entirely restart the application process Mm -hmm. in order to transfer. In the US, most freshmen, they will encourage to not even come in with an um, assigned major. They encourage them to take the basic courses that everyone has to take to graduate and then decide based on their interest in the courses that they've taken. And in the UK, it's specialist even at an earlier age, because mm-hmm. the last two years of high school in the UK, you're often doing just three subjects. Whereas in the US system, you have to do essentially six subjects, really up until the freshman year of college. In my degree, I did a math degree, and at university, I only took math courses. Yes. But in the U.S. university system, there's no way for you to do that. Right. Because these these requirements, what they call university requirements, so anyone with a degree from the University of Georgia has to have taken at least two, uh, two semesters of English. Everyone has to have taken at least a semester of maths. Everyone has to have taken at least two science courses. I should point out that this early specialization is only at English and Welsh universities 
In Scotland, the system is more similar to the US system. There is a way to accelerate some of these general classes. Here's daughter number two to explain. Because you did so many college classes at high school, you had completed your first year at university before you got there, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So I'm technically a second year, but people hate when I say that, so I'm not going to say it. A general cultural feature in the US is that the consumer should always have many options on what they want to do. This is certainly true at a US university. There are many more options for study at a US college than at a typical English university. I asked daughter number two how many options she had for her university course. Hundreds? Thousands? thousands. Tens of thousands? I mean, yeah, I could take anything I wanted. I asked the girls what their majors were. What is your major? I'm a biological engineering major. And how did you choose that major? I knew I wanted to do something to do with science, and I looked at the options. I'm quite rare in that I've, since I stepped foot on campus, I've had the same major. Mm-hmm. And what is your major? My major is cognitive science. Nobody knows what it is. It's just a mixture of psychology, linguistics, and computer science. can be used to do a multitude of things, I hope artificial intelligence and things like that. And then how did you choose your major? Through a list with my father. Every single major that um, my school offers. Like 400? I asked my daughters how easy it was to change their major at their US university. I would say it's pretty easy. It gets a little more difficult the older that you get, but for the most part, I mean, I have friends that have already changed majors, and it's been simple. Very simple. And what percentage of people change their major, would you Uh, The average person changes their major at least two times. Okay. And when do they finalize their decision on major for the average person? Most people finalize it either the end of freshman year or the first semester of sophomore year. However, that's not... You know, some people do change their major going into their junior year, and that's when you get the sixth years. That's when you get the super seniors mm-hmm. who have to do more courses. Mm-hmm. So now, as you're going into your senior year, you're pretty much doing all of your courses are related to your major. They're all related to biological engineering. Yes, yes. And um, another thing that we didn't talk about, which is worth mentioning, is that the US also has the ability where you can do two majors or even three majors mm-hmm. and then minors which is something that you may be interested in that you don't want to do a full course in, but you want to explore a few courses in it. So I know one of my ex-roommates, she did two degrees, one business degree, one international affairs degree, and she had a minor in law. And so it allows you to have really broad majors. In most universities in the UK, double majors are rare and mainly confined to Oxford and Cambridge. In the UK, you have completed a degree in a subject when you have passed all the individual courses which the academics have deemed necessary for that area of specialty. How does this work in the US, where there is so much greater flexibility on what you can study? To understand the system, I need to explain the concept of a credit hour. In the US university system, one credit hour is one hour of formal instruction per week for a whole semester. The concept is that each credit hour would require three additional hours of self-study outside the formal classes. A typical student might take 14 credit hours per semester. Every week, therefore, this would translate to 14 hours of formal instruction 
an additional 42 hours of additional work. I talked to daughter number one about the average US degree. And each major has a different number of hours attached to it. As I, as I understand it, the average US university degree has 120 credit hours of classes. But your degree, biological engineering, is 150-something, isn't it? Well, the degree itself is not required. You don't doesn't require you to do that many hours. But in order to take the required classes, right. you have to do prerequisites which are not factored into that. Uh, so okay. it is 130 hours. But in order to get to that, you have to take three maths courses before you take the basic maths course for engineering. <laughs> okay. So that puts you behind significantly. Right. So the reality is you've got to do 150 hours of classes for your degree. Another degree may be just 120. The minimum at the, at the university I go to is 126. Oh, is it? Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I asked daughter number one how she selected which classes to take. We do have this thing on the internet, actually, that you can go to, and it's the schedule of classes for the right. entire semester. Mm-hmm. It is 300 and something pages long right. in 0.8 font. Right. So we're talking tens of thousands of courses, and probably. Yes, this is, also, this is through like PhD, so first mm-hmm. year through PhD. But we are talking about a, a really large faculty all teaching three to four different courses. Right. How do you choose which course you should do then? I didn't get a lot of choice because my major dictates that you take very specific mm-hmm. choices. I have a little bit more choice in my uh, classes now. I was able to choose out of five. I was able to choose four. With so many thousands of classes that you could take, how do you, what basis do you decide you're going to take this one rather than that one? I use an advisor that you can meet with pretty much whenever and they will, they, they talk to you and they learn about like what you want to do and they will suggest classes because obviously they know it better than you. But you could do it on your own. And I've chosen a few of my classes on my own. I'm taking a class next semester called Schizophrenia. I don't think my um, advisor would have suggested it, but I'm doing it anyways. But there might be several classes on Schizophrenia or indeed anything else. How do you select one over the other? Whichever class is latest in the day (laughs) (laughs) for me, personally. And what about the quality of the professor? Yes, that's very important to me, but apparently it's not important to a lot of people because a lot of people just guess, but that is something that I've always made sure I had a good professor, unless I have no choice. What is ratemyprofessor.com? What is that? It's an extremely helpful website where the students can go and rank the professor out of five and then tell people what class they took, what grade they got, give some comments, and then say if they would take it again. And it is so if you, so if you find that there's a professor who has a, a score of one out of five, then that's essentially everybody who said this professor is terrible, don't take this class. You wouldn't take his class or her class. But somebody who was a 4.5 out of five, you would be comfortable and happy to take that person's class because you feel that they were going to be a good professor. Yes, definitely. So how do you select which class you do? Is it basically on the ability of the professor? So in the US, and this I'm sure it happens at UK universities too, there's word of mouth about how easy the class is, how good the professor is. There's also online reviews, Rate My Professor is a very popular mm-hmm. um, platform that uh, students will use. And, and how does that work? 
But if you've had a professor, you go and post a review online saying, this is the grade I got in the course. This is how much textbook usage there was. This is how good the professor was. This is how easy the class was. And then you can write a review. Um, and then there's the important question, would you take, take the, the class, class again? again? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of times you get a professor with, I think the average rating is a, a three, anything under. It's it. out of five, isn't yeah. it? As, as all proper rating systems should be out of five. Yes. This one is out of five. Yes. And so a good professor will get, what, over four? I would Well, a good engineering professor is very different than a good professor. Okay. So let's just do a good professor. Okay. We'll so do. a good professor, I think that our top rated for the school I go to has a 4.8. Okay. So that gives you an idea. A really good professor would have over a, a 4.3 or something. Okay. Um, a great engineering professor would probably have a 3.6. Okay. Um, and and then, what about bad professors? Like oh, him? the minimum grade you could get is one. So you do have professors who have... 30-odd reviews and have a grade of one. At your university, which major has the lowest average? Would that be chemistry? It's the subjects that are hard to recruit professors for okay. because they can make more money elsewhere. Okay. People also select their classes by the time of day they want to get out of bed in the morning. Right. Or whether they have work in the afternoon. Some okay. people need to take their classes at 8 a.m. through 11 a.m. This neatly segues into the next topic, working through college. In the US, 43% of all full-time students work while studying for their degree, most of them for more than 20 hours per week. This is over twice that of UK students. I asked daughter number one whether some full-time students also had full-time jobs. I know people that have pretty much full-time jobs, but they just don't go to class. Oh, okay. So what they take, course, they classes, take courses they select which courses, are remote. No. They select courses that have no attendance points uh, and that the professor uploads everything to the platform and then they just go in for the exams. They take the day off on an exam day. Okay, daughter number one. Um, do you have a job at college? Yes, I do have a job and I've had it for um, like a year and a quarter now. Mm-hmm. And why do you have a job at college? Because it gives me something else to do with my time. And it's nice to have a little bit of extra money to spend it on doing things that are luxuries. Everyone in their college career, almost everyone, will have a job at some point. Right. It's even during the year. Pretty much everyone works during the summer months, uh, which is very similar to the UK. Mm-hmm. But everyone during their college career, within reason, is going to work during the school year as well. Varying amounts of time, essentially. Not everyone works for their entire college career. In fact, most freshmen or first years don't work at all. A lot of the uh, fourth years and above have jobs that they do alongside their studies. So, uh, daughter number two, um, do you have a job at college? I actually just got a job at college. I'm going to be working at U-Haul. And what is U-Haul? It's like a self storage type of self storage and and hiring of of self-drive vans yes yes and is it common for kids at at college to have a job especially the older ones yes i would say that most kids have jobs at least have jobs in the summer even if they don't during the year but yeah as you get older pretty much everybody will have a job and and why is that why does everyone have a job because not everybody's parents supports them, so and to do the extra things, because a lot of the extra things like involved in like Greek life are expensive, and 
not everybody's parents are willing to pay for it. So having a job makes that so much easier and you can, you have a little more freedom with the more money. So you're saying that your mean parents don't give you enough money? No, they do. Okay, but you just, you get a job to develop your own skills and to give yourself a bit more money, you know, to do nice stuff. Yes. I talked to daughter number one about students moving universities. Do people ever move between universities? Because in the UK, usually once you've selected a university, you stay into that university until until your degree is finished. But that's not the case in the US, is it? Yeah, it's very common in the US that people don't really assimilate their freshman year. Either there was a problem with their roommate or they just didn't really like the town that their college was in or the professors, or they want a different major that their university doesn't offer. Um, And so they will transfer to a different college, might be nearer to home. Generally, they transfer to a college close to where their parents reside. Okay. And in some cases, people transfer to a better university. Yes, it's common if you went to a community college or you wanted to save money for your first year or Mm -hmm. so. And then in some cases, people might excel at a lesser university. And then as they excel there, they might then go to a better university in their last year or two years. And they would get their degree from the last school that they went to. Yes, but in general, no one goes to a school for two years and then transfers and gets out in another two years. Because not all of the classes you take when you transfer will actually count towards your degree. So usually people who are doing classes that they have to do from the lesser college and then transferring to one that is a better fit for them will take a fifth year. I asked daughter number one about US university accommodation. So freshman year, I lived in ECV, which is the athletes accommodation Okay. at the university I went to. The athletes live in the lap of luxury compared to the rest of the students. Right. They have private bathrooms attached to each room or they share a bathroom between two people. And they have a a living room and then everyone has their own room. Okay. That's the accommodation I lived in freshman year. I had a private bathroom and a private bedroom. I had a kitchenette area with no, nothing other than a microwave and a fridge and a living room area. Okay. And was that typical for a first year freshman student at university? No, that's, that's... Pretty atypical. So Um, describe your sister's accommodation, for example. So daughter number two lived in the high rises, which is the hub of campus activity for freshmen. Uh It's where almost everyone in Greek life lives. Right. They have a tiny box-shaped room, which I don't know how, what do you think the dimensions of that room were? (sighs) This big, but... Yeah, it's probably... What, eight by 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 twelve, maybe? Seven seven by ten, maybe? Yeah, yeah. very small. Feet, seven by ten or two metres by, let's say, three and a half metres, something like that. Yeah, so pretty pretty small. Has two big bunk beds, mm-hmm. um, which are like extra long twin beds, mm-hmm. two desks and one, you know, storage closet, maybe, storage right. wardrobe, and then a door. Uh, it has community bathrooms mm-hmm. and then a community kitchen and study areas and things like that. The assumption being that when you're a freshman, you don't spend much time in your room other than sleeping. Last year, not the case. No. And I, I feel they must have felt like hamsters doing their right. classes from their rooms. But people enjoy that, don't they? I mean, it's normal. You meet Americans all the time, and a very big chunk of people that you meet, they will still be friends with their roommate from the first year. 
I, I still live with my roommate from right. the first year. That's right. And we're going on three years very strong. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, and I had a random roommate. Right. That's the other situation. You have to share the space with someone who, theoretically, you may never have met before the day. Right. And there are some people who absolutely detest their roommates, aren't there? Well, there are some terrible roommates. Right. That, for example. For, I, I went on spring break with a girl who was given a restraining order from the entire building that she used to live in. Right. Why was she given the restraining order? Um, because she hit her roommate over a, a box of cereal. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the roommate from hell, you know. Uh, then they were worried she would become a serial killer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> guess so. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, she's now in the UK, so they've got to deal with her now. Okay. And then in the second year, many people choose to live in a sorority or fraternity house. You didn't. No. Uh, You went to live in a really rather a nice apartment. Yes, I did. I moved into the premier student apartment in the the town I go to university in. It has a rooftop pool, an infinity pool, a golf simulator. And it has all the big big screens by the pool as well. Yeah, for watching the games. Hot tubs. a full-size basketball court, like a computer lounge, lots of study spaces. And then your apartment itself? Last year, it was relatively small. I had similar room size to, to daughter number two um, in her first year of university, but just myself. Right. With basic desk things, an attached ensuite bathroom. Double bed. Double bed. Um, uh, and then a living room attached to that that had a couch, nice granite countertops balcony uh, with a a view of the river nice Mm -hmm. um and then we moved this past year from um that apartment to a bigger one in the same complex and that had a pool table in it the worst view in the history of the world but it was a large living room wasn't it? oh yeah the living room was and a full kitchen and a large living room i mean it would be i don't know 25 Feet by 25 or bigger, Much probably. Big, yes, yeah. and lots of couches and things like that. We had mm. a double TV situation, one to mm. watch sports and the other to play Mario Kart on. Okay. Um, and then each of us had a room attached with a, with a private bathroom. And is that normal, that type of accommodation for university students in... Uh, I would suggest the private bathroom and the double bed in in the room normal. is normal. Um, the amenities that it, that the apartment complex has is what made it expensive. Okay. Also, its proximity to the downtown area. Okay. Um, puts a now premium. in Britain, it's different. In Britain, you typically have one year in university accommodation, and then the other two years, if it's a three year course, you would have to find your own accommodation. So you would be looking around for somebody who's renting a room or a house, and then you would get whatever was around. And typically, the level of accommodation for students is very low. In the US, that level is much higher. I was doing the math the other day. Mm -hmm. My boyfriend lives in a house with four people, just like our apartment. Mm -hmm. The difference between that, you know, that 12,000 versus that seven or 8,000 is the, the amenities the apartment complex I have has. I mean, I have access to a pool. 24-hour gym, things like that. That's the price differential. So how often did you go to the pool? I've been three times this year. And how often did you go to the gym? I I haven't been to the gym this year. So basically that 5,000 difference is round about... I've been to the golf simulator. So you're paying round about a grand a time for those extra... I think I've probably spent about $500 using their free printing this year. So oh, okay. I'm getting some money back. 
Daughter number two currently lives in a sorority. In the next episode, we will talk about fraternities and sororities. So I think, Julian, that concludes uh, this particular episode 14 of our American Journey podcast. Um, to give you the heads up, next time we're going to talk about Mackinac Island. We're going to play some of our greatest hits and revisit things we've been saying and things we've been doing. Okay, so if there are any questions from listeners on any previous podcasts or things which people think we've missed, please let us know. We'll include those in the podcast. Yeah, or things they want to challenge us on. Think we're not right. Um, and then you'll conclude the final episode on education, uh, on particularly university education. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. So, as always, thank you for giving us your valuable time and listening to mine and Julian's rantings on all things America. Till the next session, it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me.